Good morning. Welcome to Emmanuel Anglican Church. We have been uh, this summer celebrating a summer of Sabbath. It's just a chance to give our volunteers and leaders a chance to rest uh, and enjoy worship as much as possible. You'll see some changes around here. Uh, we are scaling down our hospitality and children's ministry on a Sunday, uh, but we want to give you a chance uh, to enjoy more hospitality with each other uh, in your homes after church. Sometimes we have barbecues after church. We're always going to lunch after church, and everyone's invited. Um, and we're also looking at uh, what the Bible has to say about friendship and hospitality in the kingdom of God, because it's important. It's important uh, during the winter. It's important during the summer. It's also one of the things I appreciate most about Chicago is the way uh, that uh, Chicagoans do such a great job of hosting uh, people with amazing food, amazing music, uh, amazing uh, works of art. And so um, we, are, we are just taking a few weeks to, to, to look at what the Bible says about how we can live a distinctively attractive and beautiful uh, way of life together with our friendship and hospitality. And that's ending this week. Next week, we're going to talk about the Psalms, praying the Psalms. We're uh, looking at eight different Psalms and learning how we can pray these Psalms together as the people of God and also with people who are looking for God. I want all of you guys to be able to learn how to open the Psalms up and pray the raw language uh, of, uh, of this, of, of this uh, ancient Christian songbook. Um, so that your prayers can be more honest uh, and more ancient and also more compassionate. Uh, we can lament together and we can rejoice together and we can repent together, all with the language, uh, the beautiful and ancient language of the Psalms. So today is the last week in friendship and hospitality, and I invite you to turn to Romans 12. Um, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 14 through 21. Last week we were also in this very text and we were talking about the, the distinctive marks of Christian hospitality. What does it look like? And we, we saw that Christian hospitality is open, uh, that it's imperfect, and also uh, that it is pursuing. So you can get that sermon. Uh, we, we now have an iTunes podcast. Download it there or on our SoundCloud page. Um, uh, today... Today's point is a little bit more provocative than, uh, than last week's because we're going to talk about our enemies. And specifically in verses 14 through 21, we're going to see that Christian hospitality consumes the enemies of God with the grace of God. Christian hospitality consumes the enemies of God with the grace of God. Now, ultimately, this is good news. Ultimately, this is a way out of the cycle of revenge and hate and suspicion and fear and ultimately death that we as the human race so often find ourselves in when we have enemies. This is hard news. Uh, and so I want to dialogue with you through this text. Even though you're not talking out loud, I'm, uh, I, I want to be talking with you. And so mostly, this sermon is about 85% questions, okay? But I've got three main questions for you to take us through this text and take us through this point. 
The first question is, who are your enemies? The second question is, who are you? And then finally, what does it mean to be consumed? Who are your enemies? Who are you? And what does it mean to be consumed? First of all, who are your enemies? This text is going to be unintelligible unless we can identify our enemies. It, is, it assumes that you have them. It assumes that you have persecutors. So what I want to do is just walk through this text a phrase at a time and just run the metal detector over our collective heart and just see if the text can pick up any enemies that you might have. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. So who, persecu who persecutes you? Uh, who, past or present, has or is persecuting you? Who has set themselves against you? Who doesn't like you? Who has, and maybe even promised overtly or, or, or covertly, to destroy you, to bring you down? Have you been discriminated against? Have you been cursed? Have you been attacked? Have you been raped? Have you been molested? Have you been beaten? Does anyone want you to die? Uh, those realities can be incredibly isolating. And I want you to know if that describes you this morning, you're not alone. You're not alone. God has always had enemies. And Jesus has always, always have, has had enemies, and he still does. And, and he was beaten and he was killed. And there were people who hated him. So I want you to know that if you're being attacked or if you're under threat of attack, you're not alone. God loves you, and he wants to walk with you through your trial. Um, so also, there are many heroic and virtuous people that have enemies because they've done the right thing. There, uh, Gary Haugen spoke recently at an Anglican gathering, and he basically said, he was telling the story of International Justice Mission, which I've referred to a time or two in sermons uh, in the past, and they, they seek to protect the most vulnerable people in the world, and they're trying to stop violence wherever it exists by um, helping reshape the legal system so that it is protecting victims of, uh, of injustice. And he basically said, that has made our lives more dangerous, that when we stand up for enemies, the bad guys don't like us, too. So if you're being attacked or you're hated or you have enemies, it could be because you're doing the right thing. So I just want to validate that. You may have enemies for good reasons. Um, you may have enemies because you're doing the right thing. You may have enemies because you're full of courage. And, and you're moving in that courage in the world in such a way that brings justice and peace. So is there anyone who persecutes you? Uh, the second part of this verse says, bless and do not curse them. Do you see that in the text there? Bless and do not curse them. Okay, so maybe you haven't thought of any enemies yet. Got another question for you. Who are you tempted to curse? Who, 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 who do you want to curse? If you had the opportunity, if you had a green light, would it feel good to curse them? Um, it kind of broadens the definition. People on the street, come on. People on the road. Just rude driving. Have you ever wanted to curse them? Have you ever, have you ever cursed them? You're not alone. Um, people on the L, okay? People on the L. Maybe just a little curse. Maybe you just want to give them a little curse for a little offense. Maybe they're like, oh, yeah, stretching out. And you're like, come on. 
people who cut in line. And you're like, <laughs> sir. <clears throat> okay? People on the wrong side of, of the Hobby Lobby case. Well, whatever side you're on, the people on the other side. People for or against the decision that are like on Facebook going, I can't believe it. People on the news media that you don't like, TV personalities, you want to curse. Maybe you curse them. <clears throat> Have you ever yelled at the TV? Okay. <clears throat> now, um, there was a, early on in our marriage, um, Laura and I went to a work party, and uh, it, was, it was one of those interactive shows. And um, toward the end of the, of the, of the show, um, some of the members of the cast were like dancing with the audience. And one of the, one of the members of the cast pulled Laura aside and was like, dance with me, dance with me, dance with me. And, and she was like, no, no thanks, trying to be nice, trying to be nice. He was persistent, he was persistent. And um, finally, she, she, she said like, no, it's not happening. Um, but his, his behavior went from like kind of funny but not really to kind of predatory. And I tell you what, I was so angry with him and to this day I was, I was, it was brought to my attention when I was going through this text and I realized I still want to curse that guy. I still do. It's still in my memory. And so much of forgiveness is in our memory. So much of forgiveness has to do with the memory. And so who, past or present, do you really want to curse? Have you thought of enemies yet? Let's keep going. Verse 15. Read with me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. All right. So who's weeping are you tempted to rejoice over? And who's rejoicing are you tempted to weep about and gnash your teeth over? Is there someone in your life whose failures would genuinely make you happy? Like if you heard that Donald Trump went bankrupt, would you be like, yeah, that jerk? all the way down the line to your personal life. Whose who's rejoicing would, would cause you to weep? And whose weeping would cause you to rejoice? Um, if their plans were frustrated and they, and they were humiliated, would you be happy? Because you don't like them, because they didn't take your advice, because they're doing the wrong thing. Um, who needs to learn a lesson in, you, in your book? As you've been paying attention, who needs to learn their lesson? Who needs to be put in their place? Um, who, to whom would you love to say, <laughs> I told you so? Um, now, there's a reason that God inspired uh, this, this author and, and, and pastor, Paul, to write to the people who are trying to understand to follow the ways of Jesus. There's a reason this is in the text. Um, this is hard to do. Um, and the way of Jesus is different than our instinctive ways sometimes. Sometimes the ways that we want to go need to be challenged by the ways of Jesus, ultimately for our life, because the other way is the way of death. <clears throat> and I don't want to go down that road. I don't want you to go down that road. So we've got to be challenged by what Romans is bringing up here. Any enemies yet? Let's keep going. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. All right, so here's, a, here's another question for you. Whose offensive behavior makes you feel morally superior? Who's, whose offensive behavior 
makes you want to give yourself a moral promotion in your own heart. There are um, obvious ways that this can happen if you are very clearly a victim. It very much feels like um, you are in the moment of and beyond victimization, that you are in some ways on the side of light. It's really clear you are bathed in light. The, the perpetrator is on the side of darkness, is completely dark, and that there's a very distinct moral uh, chasm between you and the person doing the thing that's evil, the thing that's wrong, the thing that's unjust. It's very easy to, to think of ourselves as they are the other and we're over here, they are the one in need of punishment, they're the one on the side of darkness. Miroslav Volf, uh, who, who he wrote the book Exclusion and Embrace after a period of reflection, spiritual and theological reflection, after experiencing lots of victimization um, over in uh, Eastern Europe. Um, there was uh, some ethnic cleansing going on. His family experienced it, uh, and, uh, and he experienced it. And so he wrote this book called Exclusion and Embrace, and he talks about this, how part of exclusion of, of the other person is, is casting them as basically in a different moral category than yourself. There are much more subtle ways, though, that this happens, because, you know, you and I... Uh, we're not in a war zone particularly. Some of us, our lives may feel like war. Uh, politically speaking, there, there aren't guns out in the street. Um, and so there's a lot more subtle ways that this can happen with our spouses, with our coworkers, um, with, our, with our roommates, with our friends. Some of you, have you seen The Office? I know it's been out of you know, circulation for some years, but there's these moments in, in The Office where the boss, Michael Scott, is interacting with one of the employees um, and he's like, hey, you know, want to go to Chuck E. Cheese today or whatever? And, um, and uh, or he has some, like, new plan, some new thing that's, like, totally stupid. And he's walking up to Jim or he's walking up to Pam and he's, like, assaulting them with his charm. And, and there's this moment where, like, where, like, uh, you know, you see this happening, but then the camera zooms in on Jim or Pam and all they do is they just look at the camera. You know what I'm talking about? They just go, you, do you remember this? And then every once in a while, it's, it's elaborated because you know, the camera brings them into a private office, as it were, and, they're, and they basically say, like, do you see what I have to deal with? Do you see what I have to put up with? It's almost as if Jim, Pam, et cetera, they're looking for validation from the audience. Do you see how I'm being victimized here? Do you see how I have to, I have to be the bigger person in this situation? That, do you see how I'm morally superior to this doofus of a boss? And this is so tempting to do when we're interacting with people who, they're, they're, uh, they're hurting us, they're frustrating us. They didn't follow through. And so we just give ourselves a little promotion in response to, you know, and we're not going to say anything because you know what, we're the bigger man. We're the bigger woman. We, we have the maturity to not say anything, you know, and so, so we're not gonna say anything. And we might get back in a different way, or we might mention it to somebody, because we still want the validation. All, we, all it could be is just looking at the camera. How do you look at the camera? When someone's getting on your nerves, when someone takes something they shouldn't take, um, when someone persecutes you, how do you look at the camera? How do you look for validation? Whose ear do you, do you get? Do you see what I have?
have to put up with. Have you thought of any enemies yet? Um, live in harmony with one another. Don't be conceited. Fewer things in life make us feel conceited than being the victim. And then uh, giving ourselves the, the satisfaction of being the victim, capital T, capital V. The bigger man, you know, capital B, capital M, bigger woman, capital B, capital W. I am promoted. I'm better than you. Let's keep going. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. All right, finally, now who, who prompts in your life uh, dishonorable speech or behavior from you? Whose actions bring it out? Who draws the contempt out of your heart? That sneering sense of one side of the mouth is going up and you just want to spit when you watch them. Whose presence activates something dark and evil inside of you? Um, another, another insight that Miroslav Volv has on, on um, when, when we're sinned against and we want to dehumanize the people who have sinned against us is we begin, using, we get, we begin animalizing our language around that, those people or that group. We call them rats. We call them cockroaches. Uh, we, uh, we call them monsters. We call them locusts. And this happens real quick. When there's, when there's big time offense between people, we start animalizing them in our thoughts, in our art, in our language. So who are you tempted to act or speak evil against? When do you become dishonorable? When do you take the gloves off? Does anyone in your life, past or present, do that? So our enemies, they can be our haters, they can be our doubters, they can be annoyances, they can be the hangers-on. They're the person who activates pain, irritation, anger, frustration, and a measure of insanity to your life. Our enemies. So who are your enemies? Okay, second question. Who are you? Who are you? Who does your enemy make you to be? Who gives you your identity? Let's look at verse 18. Sorry, 19. Beloved. Beloved. That's who Paul's talking to. That's who God is addressing. Beloved. The loved ones. In capital B, beloved, as it should be. You are loved by God. And that is the most true thing about you. God has an intentional plan to not only bring you into existence, but to redeem you and bring you into glory, to complete you, to, to keep you, to heal you. You are beloved in your relationship to God. Whether you want it or not, God loves you. Earlier in this letter, here's how love, that very love is described. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And note that most of those things are brought on from the intentional acts of other people who hate you and want to destroy you and want to make your life miserable. Persecution and distress and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. Usually it's at the hand of another person or group of people. And Paul goes on, he quotes uh, the Jewish scriptures, and he says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Would that define you? Would that be the end? Would that mark your identity? Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. Through him who loves you you overcome these persecutions. And he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is more durable and strong than any wrongdoing done against us. It can hold us through offenses. It can hold us and keep us through and beyond victimization. It can give us a self. It can give us a core identity that no one can take away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That is, at the end of the day, what God promises will be most true about us. At the end of the day, that will be most true about us. Not that we are victims, not that we are morally superior, but that we are loved in Christ Jesus forever and to the end. But beloved, Paul says in verse 19, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. So who are you? Are you the beloved of God? The one for whom Christ gave his life and poured his blood? Or are you the one who's in charge of enacting justice. Now, perhaps you have a role in the justice system. I applaud and celebrate that, as does Paul in, in chapter 13. But are you, at the end of the day, God, as it relates to the self-righteousness of other people, or the violence of other people, or the offenses of other people? Are you their accuser before God, or are you the beloved before God? Are you their accountability structure? Are you the one who's going to never forget? Are you the one responsible for their punishments? Are you the one who's going to stand before God as the, as the expert and the connoisseur of human failure? Or will you stand before God as one who is loved? The other one is way too heavy of a burden to bear. I don't want you to bear that burden because it's not custom fit for your shoulders. Standing as people's accusers before God, whether they be your parents or whether they be people in a church that you were in that you were heard in before or whether they be your current roommates or whether they be your boss, whether they be a true enemy, someone who has attacked you, standing before God as their accuser is ultimately not your identity. Standing before God as one who is loved is the most durable identity available to you. So who are you? 
Now, the main point of this sermon is that Christian hospitality consumes the enemies of God with the grace of God. Christian hospitality consumes the enemies of God with the grace of God. So, what does it mean to be consumed? What does it mean to be consumed? Because that makes all the difference in the world here. Have you ever been consumed by something? Have you ever been consumed by something? Have you ever been overtaken uh, with love for something? Obsessed with a person? Uh, obsessed with a book? Obsessed with a hobby? You are so into that person or thing that like, it takes all of your attention. It takes all of your uh, passion. Um, or you were loved by someone so intensely that you couldn't handle it. Consumed. Evil against us can consume us too. Evil has this way of perpetuating itself, and evil can, can consume us. If it's done against us, man, the hatred can get just fire up so strong. Consummation's like fire. It, it takes us over and it burns. Um, our text describes it as being overcome. We'll, we'll look at verse 21 first and then verse 20 uh, to, to understand it better. Verse 21 says, do not be overcome, do not be consumed by evil, but overcome evil with good. Consume evil with good. Now what does that mean? Here's what it means, not in your brain, but in the flesh and blood reality of human relationships. Okay, verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy, and he's saying to the contrary, don't get revenge, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he or she is thirsty, give him or her something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, you might read that burning coals part and go, oh, that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to do. You know, because it's like, I am the bigger man, you know, bigger woman. I'm feeding you and ha, 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 you know. Feel that? Feel that grace? Shame on you. But the text doesn't say that. The text says, never avenge yourselves. It says, on the contrary to that, on the contrary to avenging yourselves, feed and clothe, or feed, uh, victual your, your enemy. Give them drink. Give them food. So it's ambiguous, isn't it? What does consume mean? What are the burning coals on their head supposed to mean? That's an image. Image needs meaning. And um, we have to let the context define what that means. Before we do that, let me tell you about Babette's Feast. Have you ever read this book, Babette's Feast? Seen the movie? Movie, I think the 60s or the 70s. Excellent adaptation. It's rare, actually, that you get an adaptation of a book that is so excellent and good. Uh, so Babette's Feast, it's about, um, it's about this Christian community. Um, and uh, it's a kind of a Puritan, small Christian community that lives in a very, very small village in Denmark. Uh, their, their, uh, their leader and their pastor uh, leads them in the ways of God and the love of God, but he eventually, he eventually passes on, and it's just the community that's left. And over time, they accumulate offenses against one another. They, uh, they gossip about one another, they cheat one another, and the, the, the sense of, of, of uh, judgmentalism and uh, division just grows in this community until it really divides them. Whenever they come together, they can't even sing anymore 
they, because they sit around the table as the, uh, the two sisters in the community try to lead them in song, and they, they look at each other and they say, I know you cheated me, and I, and, I, and I know you're a bitter woman, and they just send accusations. They can't hold it in anymore. Um, they send accusations against one another, and they're really divided. At some point, uh, there's this woman from France who seeks refuge um, from, from the violence in France. Uh, she lives with uh, two of the sisters in the community. She becomes their hostess, the, the one who cleans and, and the one who cooks and the one who welcomes them in and welcomes in guests. And, um, and uh, she, the, the, the hostess, Babette, uh, wins the lottery. She wins 10,000 francs and she asks permission to serve this very simple, uh, they're very simple in their tastes, very, very austere, uh, don't spend a lot of money, uh, Puritan Danish Christians. And she says, I want to throw you a party and I want to, I want to serve you good French food. And so she makes, she gets quail and she gets turtle and she spends 10,000 francs on this incredible meal. And she invites them all in and they all come in reluctantly and they make vows to one another before they go in. We're not going to talk about the food and we're not going to talk about the drink because that would be unspiritual and we're going to only talk about God and everything else. And so they walk in and there's lots of tensions in the room because they have a lot of history with one another. And they're seated around the table. And uh, one of the things I noticed in the movie was that the plates, the china's like stacked really high. And you just get this sense that like this is going to be one meal that I'll never forget. And is they, 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 they come around in an uncertain way. They come around the meal and they're served the turtle soup. And there's only one guy who's not part of the community who's there. And he's talking about how great it is. And they're all like, <laughs> you know what I mean? He's, he doesn't care. Um, <clears throat> they're very sheepishly eating their turtle soup um, and, uh, and their quail and drinking the, the amazing wine and champagne that is served. And with each plate that is used, you can see that something is getting burned away in their souls. The self-righteousness is getting burned away. The sense that, like, I have a grievance against you and I've been watching you and I, I know that you cheated me. That's just getting burned away. The delight of the meal, the grace of the meal is just starting to erode and, and, and get, get, uh, get burned up and consumed. And their hatred gets scorched. Their hatred of one another turns into hand-holding eventually. And their sense of superiority just sort, starts to dwindle away until all they can do is bask and feast in the delight of the moment. They got consumed as they consumed. They got consumed by grace as they consumed the grace. And Babette is the one who made it all possible. Babette is the one who spent everything she had and laid everything on the line. The, her life's passion, she was a French uh, chef, very famous from Paris, uh, and, uh, and all of her lottery winnings and all of her love and all of her life went into this meal. She laid it all out on the line. She, she, uh, she did it out of love and she did it out of delight. She did because she had the resources to do it. And my friends, Babette in that film is a picture of Christ for us. It is a picture of what Christ did because Christ brought the resources of God, the incredible love of God, and he put it into a human person. He was the love of God, walking in our midst. And he spilled his blood until there was nothing left 
so that we could feast at his table and feast on his grace and be consumed by his grace for our self, uh, for, for our hatred of others, for our sense of superiority to be burned away, for our divisions and our accusations to find consummation in the fire of God. And when the grace of God in Christ touches the parts of us that have an accusation, it does burn and it does sting. It stings because we can no longer be superior and it stings because it can no, we can no longer be God. And it stings because it humbles us and it heals because it humbles us. And I want us to be healed as a community. I want to be healed and I want you to be healed. I want the grace of God, I want the coals of God to fall on your head and fall on your heart and consume all that doesn't belong. I want you to be consumed by the grace of God. And someday you may find that there's an opportunity to actually invite one of your enemies or former enemies over to your house for a meal or maybe for an overnight stay. Maybe God's calling you to that, and guess what? Maybe he's not. Because in some cases, we can't trust someone enough to invite them into our home, and that is understandable and okay. If someone is a perpetrator of violence, don't invite them into your home. That's not what the Bible's teaching. But if you have an opportunity to see someone that you have looked down upon, and they are genuinely hungry, and you're looking on their hunger and thirst with compassion, and you have an opportunity to invite them in without bringing harm to yourself or others, you can see the grace of God in action. You can see the kingdom of God in your own home in a way that is both simple and profound. Let us pray for this opportunity to sit around a meal, not as the source of grace, but in one who will consume grace with our former enemies. Be consumed by the love of God. Be consumed by the grace of God. And be freed of our superiority complex because we are beloved. We are beloved. O God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead us from prejudice to truth. Deliver our enemies and deliver us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. And in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand with me as we confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.